Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Travis, welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, or what we, I think, commonly just say, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Right on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, you're a goalie in hockey. Where did you grow up? Uh, so weirdly enough, uh, Oklahoma, which nobody thinks of as a hockey state now, nor did they ever. Uh, but in the 90s, when the, when the Minnesota North Stars moved down to Dallas and became the Dallas Stars, they dropped off uh, some of their farm team uh, in Oklahoma City called the Oklahoma City Blazers. And uh, they built two slabs of ice in the city and really started promoting youth hockey. Uh, so prior to that, I was actually playing roller hockey, but uh, if you guys are as old as I am, you'd know that roller hockey didn't really exist in the, in the early 90s and the late 80s. Um, it was being played on quad roller skates because uh, roller blades hadn't been invented yet. That goes to show how old you are. Uh, and we played on uh, quad roller skates with, I was a goalie then, and we played with catcher gear, like baseball catcher's gear, uh, the strap-on pads and the chest pads. And we played with uh, field hockey sticks and this really hard ball. Uh, and then Almost like a, a lacrosse ball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Almost. It was it was the strangest mix of sports looking back on it. It was kind of a juxtaposition of the early days of of uh, of uh, uh, roller hockey. Um, but man, it was played in roller rinks that were you know not updated from the seventies, so just shag carpet walls and and uh, you know the, a couple nice. of the rinks, our home rink, had this. Uh, this other little area is like a standard oval, but then you could cut off into this little extra lane. that was like an extended oval that had like whoopie woos and stuff. And you could go do tricks or, or lose your ball in the, in the, in the forest of bumps. What was it that uh, uh, drew you to the position of uh, goalie? Uh, I don't really know. I just couldn't, I think when I started, they needed a goalie and I think I got stuck there. And then, um, you know, I played roller hockey for a few years. And so when uh, I got the opportunity to go see the ice, the, the ice team practice for the very first time, it'd been like really my first time to see an ice hockey player in real life. And my family was an ice hockey family, so we didn't really watch it on TV growing up either. Uh, but I remember just thinking like, man, this is awesome. Like not only is it awesome, the speed and the sound and everything that makes it awesome, but also, it was, uh, you know, Oklahoma, uh, so it was 100 degrees in the summer, and most of the skating rinks didn't have the best air conditioning, so I thought it was just great that it was not 100 degrees trying to play hockey. Hey, Travis, we should mention your full name, Travis Herman. I don't think I said your last name. We should also mention that we connected to you through Stefan Wolfen. Um, what, what are your thoughts on Stefan? Is he uh, kind of a manly man or, uh, or not so much on the, on the ice? Well, is he, he going to hear this? Uh, uh, there, there's a decent chance he listens <laughs> to this. No, uh, he's, a, he's a good guy. Um, we met up uh, in the hockey rink a few years uh, back or a few seasons back. And uh, since then, him and uh, another guy you may know, Trey, uh, started up uh, a hockey team of their own and, and – uh, coerced me along as their goalie 
Yeah, Stefan's Stefan's a great guy. And when he said, Hey, you've got to talk to this guy I play hockey with, Travis, he's he's a cool dude and he's got some great stories. So <laughs> Travis, I don't know where to go with, with uh the question, but when he says you have great stories, what pops into your head? Uh man, it's hard telling after hockey, uh, you know, the fourth period, the beers start flowing and you never know uh, what got said or, or what, what was considered a good story at the time. Um, I guess I guess it depends on the audience, right? Yeah, yeah, or what led into that story. You know, you get five or six old guys together with a little bit of booze, and, you know, it just takes takes twists and turns and corners. So, if, so when you – well, let me back up to Oklahoma. Were uh, tornadoes just ridiculously bad all the time during tornado season? You know, so to to back back out of the that question a little bit, before I lived in Oklahoma, I grew up in Kansas, and we grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere. Um, but we were kind of at the top of a hill, and it seemed like, you know, at least of my best memory at that time, that you could see from one horizon to the other, because there wasn't a lot of trees, it was a lot of farmland. And so when we would see tornadoes coming, you would see them, but they were you know, a, a distance away, you know, felt like three to five miles away. You could see it happening in the distance. Um, and we had a storm cellar and, you know, it got windy. We'd lose some shingles from time to time. Um, but it just got to be kind of a common thing. And so then when we moved to Oklahoma, we moved into Oklahoma City and they had the tornado sirens and, and all of that business. And it seems like they would just sound them every time there was the slightest chance that there, that there could have been a touchdown or something that really seemed like it never was quite as serious as the ones that you just ended up knowing when they were there. So I, I kind of, I guess you could say discounted the importance of them. Um, and there's not to say that a lot of bad things hadn't happened, but really the very worst thing that I've happened in probably the 30 plus tornadoes that I've witnessed, you know, firsthand, um, was uh, one of them uh, was in Oklahoma, and we had a it was a dog kennel that uh, that was you know kind of like the stock fence that you four panels and you kind of just bolt it together, uh, but it's not really attached to the ground. It's just like four ten foot panels that kind of bolt together, and uh, we had had like sun netting put up on it, and the and the wind caught it and and turned the thing into a trapezoid and squeezed my dog kind of in between it as it as it said, but then, you know, it immediately blew over and the dog ran, ran away from the fence. But that was really about the only damage or like really kind of the scariest scenario that I ever, that I ever got to witness. Um, but I've lived very close to some areas that were completely demolished. Just kind of the, uh, when that big tornado went through more uh, back, I want to say late eighties or maybe nineties. It's really hard to remember when you get this old, like that was just a few miles away from our house and our house didn't, you know, maybe a few tree branches here or there got knocked down, but our house really didn't scathe, get scathed. And yet that knocked out like, a, you know, a mile wide swath or like three miles long and just devastated everything in its path. But it just felt like, uh, you know, they, they just, they all kind of felt the city always felt like they made a lot bigger deal about it than that in the strength of the tornadoes to me. Yeah. There's the, uh, laws of probability right and the probability of you being caught in a mile wide uh 
tornado that, that lasts for three or four miles is pretty darn low. But I mean, if you were part of that uh, or you had family members that were part of that, it's uh, it can be devastating. Oh, definitely. I mean, those guys lose everything in an instant. And, you know, it always seems like the tornadoes happen at the, at the dusk hour, you know, right when the, the earth's cooling off and the sun's going down. So you never really can see the damage until it's just getting ripped off of your house, typically, because it's always dark. Gotcha. So when you were uh, beginning to make money full time, what, what were you doing for a living? Were you an entrepreneur right away or were you doing something else? No, I, uh, I actually, so I went to Oklahoma, Uni- University of Oklahoma, or OU, and uh, I screwed off there and got kicked out academically uh wasn't able to stay in so i had to go to uh well i went to work doing what i kind of knew to do which was working on cars um and i was doing like every crappy grease wrench job that you could do you know i worked at a 15 minute oil change space uh you know where they just drive in and you don't even look at the customer just somebody from the top like yeah give it a this you spin off the filter and drain the oil and you know send them on their way and then i I worked for some, you know, break and muffler shop where you just did breaks and mufflers all day long. Um, then I decided, man, I really need to get back to school because this is a hard, it's a hard way to make a dollar. Um, I remember the, the boss that I worked for was a little sketchy and like he would pay bonuses and bottles of whiskey and hundred dollar bills, uh, which, you know, the hundred dollar bills were nice, but it was usually a bottle of whiskey. And that, that, at 19, 20, 21, like I didn't really know what a bottle of whiskey was. It was, it was something that old men drank. Um, I was still into just Bud Light and stuff then. So that being said, um, at that same time in Oklahoma, uh, it was still a 3.2 state, uh, 3.2% alcohol. So I didn't really know what craft beer was. Like I thought that craft beer was like Red Red Hook or Red Red Dog or, you know, line of, uh, what was it, Henry? No, it was, uh, there was this other brand. Uh, it was a red ale. Can't even remember it right now. Um, but there were just a few non-Budweiser or Coors brands that you had ever see. Uh, and so I thought that that was craft beer. Uh, then I finished. Uh, so I wanted to be a vet, a veterinarian. And uh, I went to Oklahoma State and uh, was working towards that. But turns out I had to have better grades than I was getting to get into vet school. Uh, so I continued working on microbiology. I took kind of all the microbiology classes that I needed to graduate, but then I didn't, uh, wasn't ready to graduate. I hung around a little while longer and I took a bunch of chemistry classes. So I ended up double minoring in um, chemistry and microbiology uh, for my, my bachelor's degree. Uh, and then from there, I started working uh, for this company that tested paint. So they like painted high-end towers, communication towers and stuff. And when the paint would fail, they'd try to get this company to warranty it. And this company would like go and test the paint and try to find out the piece and then it failed. Anyways, it was really boring. Uh, the girl that I was dating at the time moved out to California to take a job. And uh, we broke up because I wasn't ready to move. Um, and then I went out to see her probably two months after she was out there and fell in love with California. Came back packed up my dog and, and my 10 things that I owned and drove out to California. And, uh, there I met craft beer. Um, but before I met craft beer, I started working for a pharmaceutical company 
um, and I was working in the protein purification and fermentation side. So the, they knew the entire genome of, of brewing yeast and they would just take out the genes that made alcohol and put in genes to make a protein. And then this, this company would brew this exactly like they were making beer, just feed a bunch of dry malt extract to yeast. And instead of making alcohol, it would make this protein. And then we would like centrifuge the protein off of the rest of the, the supernatant and, uh, and purify it down until you got to the protein that you're looking for. And so the entire time that I was doing that, um, none of the, there were no commercial products based on that technology. Um, but now fast forward 15 years later, and there's some of the drugs that are on the market uh, that end in the name MAB, like monoc means monoclonal antibody, which is uh, some of that same technology. Uh, so I did that for about 12 years, and during that time, fell in love with you know craft beer, and then started touring breweries, and then kind of realized that that I was making beer just in a way different way, uh, and then decided I wanted to do the brewing thing. So started like most people and did the home brewing task, uh, but was just not satisfied, and continued to refine my my my. Uh, craft until we got here so tell us a little bit about that uh what, what was it like going down the home brewing route you know, how, how does one get started in that uh well so what i did um it was about 15 years ago that i started this and there wasn't a lot of information um available on the internet i mean there was some but it's not like it is today where there's just you know you could read for months and months and get tons of good information uh, so I started, uh, with what was being advertised at the time, which was a Mr. Beer kit where you just have the, the can of, of, you know, condensed wort and you just open it and open the can and pop it in the water, stir it up and dilute it down and then pour it in a fermenter and tear open a little dry pack of yeast and, and let it rip. And, uh, it tasted absolutely abysmal. It was horrible. And, um, the amount of work that it took to do it was just ridiculous and so I kind of put that away for a while uh, but I was talking to a friend who had already done all grain homebrewing and uh, had decided that that was still ridiculously hard work and didn't want to do it so he gave me all of his gear just kind of free of charge and so I got a little kettle and a little uh, you know the, the, the beginning of the uh, um, louder screen if you will which is just a at that point a hole a piece of pipe with a bunch of holes punched in it and, uh, you know, I got the itch that turned out a little bit better. And then I started doing more research and built a little bit better equipment. And then I wanted to do it at a bigger batch because, you know, you would spend three days to make five gallons, maybe four gallons of beer if you were lucky. And you would drink all of that long before you ever got ready to make another batch. Uh, so then moved to 10 and then, uh, was too rich to handle in the kitchen. So I, also as a kind of part-time welder from my from my break and muffler days decided i could start welding together my own brew stand and so i built this pretty rickety stand um well i take that back before i got to there i got a turkey burner and i took it outside uh but i bought a 40 gallon or a 35 gallon pot and i filled it all the way to the brim and like my science mind i, I was going to take readings every 10 minutes and see how much temperature i picked up and i started it you know, filled it all the way to the brim and started the fire. 
And for like the first hour, I think I gained maybe like one degree. And uh, so I stopped mm-hmm. checking it and I went inside and was watching, um, I was watching something on TV and uh, I heard this big noise and a bunch of sounding like water going everywhere. And the, the turkey burner pot, it actually buckled under the weight of the, of this 40 gallon, 40 gallons of water that was on top of it. And I put a big dent in the bottom of my brand new pan and I was like super bummed about the deal. So then I decided to build my own setup and uh, I cobbled together out of old street signs and pretty much any pieces of metal I could find. And uh, that was my, that was kind of my first foray into like now I can make gear. And uh, so I decided I was going to go learn to do it. And at the time, my wife worked at the University of California, Davis. And uh, so I was able to use the family discount to get into uh, the brewing science program there at University of California, uh, there in Davis. And we lived in, we lived in the next town over, which is Vacaville. That's where the Novartis plant was at. And uh, so anyways, I, I thought that, you know, um, that was how it was going to go. So I did my program there, and then I immediately applied to all the breweries in the Bay Area, thinking that they were just going to, you know, see my degree and, like, immediately hire me on for the brewmaster position. And uh, it turns out that that's not the way that it works in the real world, nor would I hire that guy for that position at my brewery now. But, uh, yeah, so they still want you to start at the bottom and wash tags and fill and, you know, work your way up. And I just wasn't prepared to do that. You know, I, I was making over a hundred thousand dollars a year in the pharmaceutical game uh you know just had a good job and had a car and a house and things that i had already signed up to pay for i couldn't just go back to taking a thirty-five thousand dollar a year entry-level position um so i had to put that on the back burner for a little while longer and i continued to homebrew and build my homebrew stand uh, until i got to uh 355 gallon um uh, Bushman pots and they were it was all gravity fed and uh, it was all built out of five inch square tube so it ended up being like a one ton brew stand uh, but I was turning out a lot of beer um, and the itch was still there to, to, to want to make the jump so I enrolled in another brewing school out of Vermont called American Brewers Guild and I went there and got my uh, my brewing uh, certificate from that place uh, and that part of getting your accreditation from that place or accreditation, I don't know if I put the, the wrong term in there, uh, but you have to end up in an internship um, and you have to successfully be able to solve a series of things that the internship sets, sets up for you. Uh, and so I, I got to um, really lucky. I bought this RV uh, from not knowing at the time a tweaker i didn't know what that really was um but i bought this like hey travis hold on tweaker Uh, meaning like a like a meth head yeah like this thing would had been in the woods of santa cruz uh and it had like tarps and tents all over it and the guy was just living in it and i guess he went away or something and his mom sold it for like 1200 bucks it was this really ghetto um you know the like volkswagen vans at the pop-up top they're called uh, um, Westphalia. Yeah. The, that company also partnered with Toyota in um, 81 and 82. And they basically put like an, they took a Toyota truck, which in 81 was just a basic two wheel drive, you know, little tiny truck. 
and they cut the frame and stretched it five feet and they put this big fiberglass box on the back of it with like a tilt top and that's what this thing was and i guess that that was way too much for those cars so in the early 90s um, from what i can tell from researching this thing they had recalled them all because the axles were breaking and the trucks were flipping over and killing people because mm. the axles weren't designed to have so much weight on them uh, and this one somehow survived uh, and so i bought it for practically nothing it was a toyota so of course it ran and uh, i gutted the inside of it and i put all all kinds of ikea hardwood floor all over the inside and thought in my mind i never even went down to check this out but in my in my mind anything in san diego was sunny and beach and this this uh, internship at the lost abbey was in san diego actually escondido but as far as the map concerned it looked like san diego to me uh, so I thought I was going to be able to drive down there and just pop the top of this thing in the middle of summer and just feel the, feel the, the you know, ocean breeze all day. Um, but Escondido is not near the ocean and it's like 110, uh, in the shade all summer long. So I really busted my ass at my internship, mainly just because I didn't want to sit in my RV, uh, that didn't have air conditioning or a fan. Um, and so I parked the RV behind the brewery and got a, a three-month membership to 24-Hour Fitness. And I ride over to 24-Hour Fitness and take a shower and do my, my maintenance. And then I just live working until the sun went down. And then I'd take my shift gears and go sleep in my RV and wait for the next day to start. So at, at this point, had you already walked away from the $100,000 job and all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had uh, I'd already decided this is what we're going to do. Um, so uh, a, a few other things had happened in there that, uh, that, that got rid of the house and the car. Um, uh, the 2006 financial crisis being that. Um, so it was, uh, it was easy to get. At that point, it was kind of like, all right, we got this really bad situation to happen but at the same point it allows you to kind of pursue this thing that you couldn't pursue before uh so yeah it did that um then from there i got offered to move down there but um i couldn't couldn't get my wife to relocate because she still had a really good job in the bay area uh so i respectfully declined and went back to looking for work in in uh in the bay area and i was lucky enough to get to I uh, get hired on at Russian River Brewing Company, and I uh, worked there and learned so much um, from the industry. Uh, and then from there, left uh, left to work one more year uh, as an apprentice or as a as a, a brewer's apprentice at a brewery in Chandler, Arizona, before coming to Atlanta to start Papa. Wow. Hey, so, so go ahead, Daniel. I I just wanted to hear about more about the uh, the apprenticeship model. Is that like very very common in the brewmaster world? Uh, yeah, it's it's probably one of the two paths that you take to kind of get uh, where you're going. You know, one being the the you know I'm just going to start at the bottom. You know, I'll come in and clean stuff and sweep and you know what else can I do kind of thing. Um, and then the apprenticeship model. Yeah, I think it. It uh, it gives you some real world experience because even having experience 
working around cylindroconical tanks and pumps and hoses and pressurized vessels and, you know, sterile wart. I still didn't understand a lot of the terminology that. Sorry about that. Um, a lot of the terminology that's based around like brewing that, you know, is kind of, um, uh, industry specific. And then there's just a lot of techniques that, you know, instead of saying, for example, the, the, the word louder and, you know, so I'm going to louder and void off. And you're just like, man, that sounds really intense. And really all you're doing is just filtering and recirculating, but using the German terminology, it, it's a lot, you have to learn a lot of, uh, you have to learn the lingo and you kind of have to learn the, the, the process of the specific brew house that you're working on. And having an internship kind of helps that because in the real, in the real brewing world, you, you know, most breweries are, are run really lean. Um, and the fact that they don't really have a guy who can just stand around and train you, if anything, it's like, start following me, you'll catch on. Um, but at the same time, the, the uh, the word that I'm looking for, the risk, I guess you would say for the brewery is that, you know, if you get a mistake and let's say you're running near capacity, it could cost you a half a month, you know, half a month's work. If you lose a beer at the wrong time, you lose a beer near the end of fermentation, you've lost two weeks of, of work and time that, that that tank could have made another beer in. Um, so it's a high risk. So most, you know, brewery owners as a smart business person isn't, it's not really worth the risk of training somebody at an expense that has such a great amount. So it's, you, you do feel better getting somebody who's been through an apprenticeship because you've already kind of got a chance to evaluate them before you, you just throw them to the wolves. How easy is it to like mess up the process and, and lose a batch or whatever you call it of beer? There's a hundred chances every day. There's a hundred chances of it. It's, it's really, it's, it's really hard. It's not really hard. It's very methodical to make good beer. You have to think of it in a very methodical way. And if you do one step or don't do one step in a, in a, in a series of hundred, you know, a hundred steps before the process is done, it could really, you know, mess the whole thing up. And then if you don't have a, a system in place to, have accountability for you know whether it gets done whether that be a log and a check mark going yeah i did it or or just having somebody that you can trust confident enough to know that they do all those steps you may never know what went wrong you may think mm -hmm. that something that you did was wrong or something with the water was wrong or something with the yeast is wrong and really it was one guy who forgot to do one step maybe purge the extra sanitizer out of the bottom of a tank before putting the yeast in and killing it with the sanitizer um you know that's just one tiny step. The tank was cleaned perfectly. The beer was brewed perfectly. But there was that one little step that threw the whole thing down the drain. Hey, so Travis, the, the young lady who you visited two months after you broke up in California, is she your wife now? She is. She's she your is wife. wife. What year did you get married? Well, so interestingly enough, um, I took her to prom. We dated through um, high school and through college. Uh, and then uh, we got married. And you're going to put me on the spot. She's going to listen to this. Oh, no. Uh, so I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, man. No, no, no. I, I want to say it was 04. Uh, but I know, I know the date. 
well, yeah, now I just put myself in a thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just uh, inadvertently got you in trouble, man. Sorry about that. Nah, uh, well, when you're with somebody that long, I, I think it still just counts as a lifetime, right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Of course, yeah. that doesn't always work when I ex try to explain that to my wife. Yeah, no, it always sounds good when you forget the anniversary, and then uh, you're like, no, nah, every day is an anniversary with you. That's that's right. They don't right. Never. Hey, so she, y'all were married when you were doing the thing down in Southern California. Fact, as a matter of fact, um, and maybe this is where some of the stories start to come out, but she was eight months pregnant and came down to visit me. Uh, and we took that crappy little RV and went to this campground uh, with my 80 pound Labrador. And uh, it was, it was a, you know, Southern California campground in August. So it was really hot. And uh, we were, you know, just trying to make the best of it. And my dog had come across a skunk and fought with this skunk and got sprayed several times. And so I've got an eight-month pregnant wife and a 100-degree camper show with a freshly sprayed uh, Labrador. And uh, it was a pretty miserable time. She was happy to get back on a plane and go back home and uh, give me another month down there before I brought my dog and stinky RV home. Yeah, that, that had to be the, uh, the bottom for your marriage, I'm guessing. It's, uh, okay. If we made it through that, yeah, if we made it through that, um, that was a uh, that was a fun, a very fun, interesting night, trying to make that make that uh, smell go away. But we didn't even uh, we didn't even rent a hotel. We checked it out. I I, uh, I can't imagine having an eighty pound dog who's been sprayed like that staying in a small space with your pregnant wife. <laughs> I can't imagine. It was hey, brutal. Hey, Travis, I just pulled up your website, and there's a picture of four guys. One of them I've seen on TV, the guy with the orange glasses on the side. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. Are you in this picture? Uh, I am. I'm that handsome fellow there with the big beard. You have a giant beard, dude. I'm so Thank jealous. You. Yeah, that, uh, I just shaved it off uh, in mid-January. It was, it was a lot, and I like to eat burgers and you can't really take a big bite of anything without ending up with a mouthful of hair when you got a beard like that. So you can't see me, Travis, but I have a beard that's been growing for, I don't know, four or five months. The thing you have in that picture looks like it was growing for over a year. Yeah. So uh, maybe again, this is a, maybe some of what Stefan was talking about, but the, the previous time that that beard was cut, it was done by Rachel Ray. What? No way. <laughs> Yeah, uh, not Rachel Ray herself, but one of her stylists. They done a uh, make man makeover, and I got nominated somehow. And uh, so they came out to Georgia and shaved my head and my beard and put me in some spanks and skinny jeans and like zip up <laughs> boots. And uh, and then they flew me out to New York with my family and they uh, put us uh, put us up in a nice hotel and gave us some money to go out and have a good time and and put us on the show. It was pretty cool. And then I completely outgrew those spanks and those pants and let the beard and hair grow and didn't do any of the things with the moisturizer or anything that she told me I should have. So, wait a minute. Were you, were you a guest on the show? I was. And what were you talking about? Your your uh, your brewing or your life story? No, it was, uh, it was, I don't know if you watched much Rachel Ray, but it was maybe a minute of airtime. Uh, there's like a whole day of cooking 
And then they're like, yeah, we did this man makeover. And I think they had one or two. I think it was, honestly, I didn't watch the, the, I just watched the part that I had. But I think it was a series of maybe three or four people that they made over for their spouse. Um, and it was maybe a, a week-long thing. And I was just one of the guys that got made over on that day. But there was no, she didn't, she didn't really ask me much. It was kind of like you stayed behind the, the thing, the area where she's cooking at. And then they're like, all right, commercial break, come out here and, you know, answer whatever she asked you. And then like, okay, commercial break, beat it, get out of here. Wow. Okay. Um, hey, so- all, the, all the up to it part though was like, there was a lot of, like I said, they came and, and, uh, you know, cleaned up my house a little bit. And, and then they like gave me a haircut and went and got all these clothes for me. And there was a lot of like interview off, off, uh, like off camera stuff, I guess, uh, before that and they used maybe, you know, 30 seconds of the five or six hours of interview, um, on the actual show. Yeah. It's a, it's a strange business. Those uh, shows that, yeah. that do those sorts of makeover kind of things. Hey, so what's the, I say he's famous, but I can't remember his name. He's a, he's a cooking show guy, right? Yeah. That's that. The, the guy that you're talking about, that's Andrew Zimmern. And he's the dude that eats all the weird stuff in all the weird places. That's where it, that's his, that's his most, uh, um, known thing, but he also does cooking show. He's a, uh, travel channel guy. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And he's pretty entertaining too, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's got a really interesting story. Um, I, I just, uh, I didn't know this until I'd actually, my mom had seen this picture and she recognized the guy and she, didn't get a chance to talk to me about it. So she just did some research and then come around, turn, turned around and told me the story about it. But, uh, I guess he had had problems with alcohol earlier in life and went sober. And, uh, then when he came and visited us this day, he actually, without me saying, Hey, do you want to try one of my beers? Actually asked to try one and drank it. I don't think he drank the whole thing, but you know, he had a, he had a, a you know, three or four sips out of it. And, um, so I just told my mom, I was kind of like, Hey mom, like this guy actually drinks some of my beer. He's eating the worst things. And, you know, he's eating grubs and, and toenails and things and all kinds of weird cultures. And, uh, he didn't, he didn't complain about my beer. And she's like, yeah, I read this thing about him and I guess he doesn't drink. So I was really surprised that he, that he gave it a whirl. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I can't, can't imagine he turned back to uh heavy drinking after his visit with you. Yeah, I don't think he did that. I couldn't get him to do any keg stands or anything. Uh, <laughs> hey, uh, Travis, who else is in the picture besides you and uh, Mr. Zimmer? Um, so the other guy that's there, he is th- – these two um, at the works. Uh, I know I'm going to say his, nev- his name wrong, but it's – I want to say it's Kevin Gillespie. I'm not sure that I'm saying that name right. Uh, but And then the guy that's on the other side of him is my business partner, Matthew Shira. And so – me and Matt own Scofflaw and Andrew and um, Kevin are, uh, are um, yes, fathering the food hall project that's there. So at the works, it's a, um, it's a 80 acre complex that has shiny shopping and dining and a brewery um, and a bunch of open spaces and concert concert spaces and, uh, townhomes and uh, these guys he has a um, 
these guys have a concept that's already successful in New York, and they are the ones that are spearheading this concept here. And so they're kind of managing the food hall and we're handling the business, not managing the food hall, but, but overseeing the food hall. And we're um, doing all of the beer on the property. That's an awesome opportunity, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's the amount of exposure that it's going to give us. And, you know, the, the ability to kind of finally have a nice spot um, to actually have a beer is, is, uh, is huge. Um, not that the brewery, the you know the Scottsdale Main Facility isn't a nice spot, but it was never meant to be a tasting room. Um, you know, even when we started, it was just a, a tour place, and so there's no air conditioning, there's no fences, or there's no walls or anything that separate it from the from the manufacturing space. And there's always pumps and forklifts and canning machines and motors and you know alarms and things going off, and it's always 100 degrees in there um, or it's you know 50 degrees in there because the garage doors get open um, but it's not really a good spot to go for like a date night uh, where this new spot is you know that's got fancy wooden fancy wooden tables and you know art and lighting and temperature control and you know ambient music um, it's a much much more refined way to enjoy a scoffer What's what's the name of the the larger uh, what did you say eighty acre complex? What's that called? Uh, so the name of it's called the uh, the works, and then this this uh, our brewery there is called Doctor Scoffaw's Laboratory and Beer Garden, or Doctor Scoffaw at the Works. Um, but the name of the entire complex is called the Works. Cool, that's awesome. Uh, how often do you interact with uh, Andrew Zimmer? Uh, this was a one-time thing. Um, he's probably out there more often, um, but this was kind of a, he kind of wanted to meet us and we kind of wanted to meet him. Uh, I think probably more the other way around. I think we wanted to meet him a whole lot more. Um, but this was just a, an opportunity where we were all in the same place at the same time. That's really cool. Hey, so y- you've essentially been an entrepreneur for, for a while now. Uh, and at, when did you when did you start Scofflaw? What year was it, roughly? Uh, twenty sixteen. Okay, so twenty sixteen, you guys were rolling along, I'm guessing, doing pretty well, and then uh, COVID strikes. Tell us about March of twenty twenty until now. What that experience has been like running Scofflaw? Well, so uh, obviously with the bars closing and uh, social life stopping as we know it, uh, we were predominantly draft beer. Uh, we were probably 70% draft and 30% cans. And uh, we had um, we had been really fortunate to have that ratio because our tagging line was much uh, better at um, packaging large amounts of beer than our canning line. Our canning line was, um, was kind of limited to 35 cans a minute uh, if it was running good and it didn't run an hour. It didn't run an hour without usually having some issue uh so you can never really get uh good reliable numbers off of it we were lucky in knowing that it was our achilles heel early on and so we had already designed and paid for and had delivered um in february of it actually was delivered in december of 20 
18 um, with the schedule to be through customs and commissioned on February of 2019 uh, an Italian canning line that could do 250 cans a minute. Um, and we thought that this was going to be the, uh, you know, solution to our biggest bottleneck. Um, and then COVID hit and they were not allowing anybody from anywhere to travel anywhere, but especially not Italy. So um, at the same time, uh, we no longer had any need for draft beer. There were no bars ordering. Um, and all of the grocery stores and liquor stores were selling all the alcohol that they could sell uh, in cans. So we immediately needed a whole bunch more cans than we had. And uh, we had this beautiful canning line ready to fill them that we could not get commissioned. So we um, kind of went all hands on deck and started running our old canning line 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, just doing everything we could do to, to get some beer in package. Um, and, you know, luckily we were able to shift with the amount of resources that we had. And we, we, we brought in a bunch of people that were out of work bartenders to help do some of the, the more repetitive tasks that, that didn't require, you know, knowing how to operate a piece of equipment. And we were able to, um, still do really well, uh, switching hundred percent over to cans. Um, we donated, um, over $200,000 to a few different, uh, charities that, uh, um, help support the, the, uh, service industry workers in, um, a few different States. Uh, but that, um, has, you know, turned around. These are people that normally would be selling your beer, um, at the bar who, you know, now are still employed. They buy your beer and they convince other people to buy your beer. And uh, so that was able to keep us afloat during COVID. Um, we also had, we pivoted a little bit. We had already had um, contacts uh, because we just recently started the vodka and gin side of the business. So we had access to um, distilled grain spirits. Um, and so we were able to dabble in, um, with, I say dabble, we jumped both feet into the sanitizer production. Uh, there for a few months, we made uh, over 2,000 gallons. Um, oh, wow. uh, we packaged it in a lot of different formats and uh, donated a lot, sold some. Uh, but we were able to, we were able to stay, um, we were able to stay, you know, employed and, and, and keep all of our employees employed and employ some, some temporary employees uh, or employ some people temporarily. Uh, during that time. So it's, um, it was, it was lucky for us a lot luckier than a lot of people were. Yeah. And what's it like now? Is it, uh, basically back to a new normal or are you guys still trying to be super creative to, uh, keep yeah, going? it's, it's, uh, it's getting back to normal. You know, the bars are open. Um, some of our biggest accounts still, you know, we, we had a, a, uh, we had a bar at State Farm Arena. Um, you know that was a big outlet for. They're not doing games in, you know, in full in full numbers yet. So the, the numbers are still down as far as the skew of seventy to thirty. It's probably a little bit more like fifty fifty or maybe even sixty forty now package. But um, at the same time, with our with our new canning line now up and fully functional we're able to fill the orders that people want. Um, and we're able to, you know, they're 
there were people who wanted to be, uh, wanted to carry some of our products and we just literally didn't have enough inventory to fill that. And so we're able to fill inventory uh, in places that we previously couldn't. So it's, it's getting back to normal um, and getting back to the production, um, you know, production at the, at the rate that we were doing before. And, and you enjoy doing what you do on a daily basis? Uh, I definitely enjoy doing what I do on a daily basis. Um, it's not the way that I pictured it uh, in my dream. Um, but it's a, but I also didn't realize how very hard brewing is. And if I would have stuck with doing it in the way that I pictured it, I would be probably broken by now. I, you know, I, I, I thought I love the romantic side of, you know, tearing open the bag of green and throwing it in the mill and, you know, wiping down the brew system at five o'clock and going and standing at the bar and having a, having a, a you know, a chat with all the guys and talking about the beer that you just made. But, the reality is that, you know, all of that is incredibly hard work and for you to be able to do it at a, at a scale that, you know, the economy of scale makes sense. Um, you need an army of people to help you do that. You can't do it all yourself. And then the moment that you can't do it all yourself, you sort of lose that, that glamor side of, of doing it all yourself. Um, but that being said, you actually can still move around at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, it's probably a good thing having a wife and two kids. You probably shouldn't just stand and drink at the bar every day from five o'clock to, you know, eight o'clock. Like how I pictured it was going to be awesome to do when I was in my thirties and thought that that was like the coolest thing that you could do. And it was in your thirties. Just uh, not so good when you got kids. Yeah. Society looks down upon you when you, uh, you know, come home drunk every night. Miss yeah. But, well, the, <laughs> the polite society for sure. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. not that uh, tweaker from, uh, <laughs> yeah, from Santa Cruz. Yeah. Hey, uh, how you, how did you and Matt meet or how did you guys form uh, your partnership? Um, so we actually met through a mutual friend. Um, uh, his name was JP and um, it was kind of that, that, uh, that commercial again, kind of showing my age here, but uh Reese's peanut butter cup commercial where the guy, you know, the kids walking down the street with the peanut butter, you know, eating the peanut butter out of the thing. And the other kids walking down the street with the, with the chocolate bar and they run into each other and they're like, you got your peanut butter in my chocolate. Like, Oh, you got your chocolate in my peanut butter. You know, the commercial. Um, oh, Hey, so Travis, how are you? Uh, I am 45. Oh, you're young man. I'm 52. Of course oh, I remember that commercial. Yeah, okay. All right. So it was kind of that, like JP had a buddy who uh, was interested in, they were already in uh, the craft beer business um, and were, were wanting to, in the craft beer retail business, bars, and uh, were wanting to get into the brewery business. And I had always wanted to own my own brewery, but had to go through the apprenticeship and, you know, learning how to run the business side of it first. And so um, you know, he knew somebody who wanted to start a brewery and he knew somebody who also wanted to start a brewery. And, uh, so he put us together. Um, and it was about a, a year and a half, uh, romance kind of between the time that we started to talk about it and then, uh, visited Atlanta, uh, then, you know, looked at places and talked about it and then brought the whole family to Atlanta to visit for a while and, and kind of felt the vibe and, um, then decided, uh, decided in 2014 that we were going to do that. And it took us two years, 
from 2014 to 2016 to, you know, brewing in the basement and looking for facilities and getting leases and getting equipment and getting, uh, you know, all the things that it takes to build a brewery together. Uh, it took us about two years to get that done. And you guys are still together and still making it happen. Still together, still making it happen, still growing. Um, like I said, we opened up Dr. Scoffaw's at the works um, on Halloween night. Uh, we're currently in the process of opening a distillery in Kentucky. Um, and uh, obviously have a couple more things in the fold that always looking to grow. Hey, so you said distillery in Kentucky. Are you talking vodka and gin or bourbon? Bourbon. Yeah, I guess that's the only thing you can uh, put in a distillery there, right? Uh, yeah, you would do, you would definitely be frowned upon if you did anything else there. That's That's got to be the most competitive place on earth to uh, try to make bourbon. Yeah, there's a lot of good ones there, for sure. So are you going to call it Scofflaw Bourbon, or are you going to call it something else? Uh, no, it's going to have the, the name uh, All Nations Bourbons. Okay. Cool. Well, I, I, uh, I'm a fan of bourbon, uh, Travis. So any, any time that I have a hankering, I'm, I might, uh, text you. All right, please do bring it down and show you the, the whole operation. That's really cool. So, uh, you guys broke ground or you have a place you're going to do it. Uh, we have the location. We have not broke ground. Um, it's, uh, it's in the drawing stages right now in the raw drawing. So which direction is the building going to sit on the property kind of thing? Gotcha. Are, are you going to bring in somebody who makes bourbon professionally? Or are you guys going to try to figure it out yourselves? Uh, no, we, we've got, uh, we're going to bring somebody in who knows how to do it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Cause yeah, I imagine the process uh, is pr pretty different than making beer. It's, it's, it's really similar in a lot of ways, but, um, you know, much like making beer, there's a lot of nuances. You really have to have a, a a a taste for bourbon to know, you know when to when to when to go from your heads to your hearts to your tails. Like really, when to cut it and when to, you know, the Kenny Rogers saying like know when to hold it, know when to fold. I guess you really have to know that. Um, I would imagine that that doesn't happen uh, in the length of time that I've been drinking bourbon. So, uh, Travis, what's your hockey team's record this season? Um. So I play on three different teams and I coach two. Oh my the gosh. Team, <laughs> the team that I'm playing on tonight is uh seven, one and one. Uh, so the, um, this is, this will be a fairly easy night tonight. I'm hoping. How many for, for this particular team, you're seven, one and one. How many goals have been scored against you this season? Uh, well, it's beer league hockey. Uh, so, <laughs> They're probably higher than NHL numbers. Um, so wait a minute, what, what are the final scores typically? Like eleven to nine? Uh, I would say five, five. You know, seven to five is a pretty normal number. You know, some of the some of the games when everybody shows up and it's not you know midnight on a Friday because you can definitely tell the performance level. If it's six forty on a Sunday, like usually people are still pretty sober. The games are you know two to three. But you get that 940 on a Friday game when the guys have been in the parking lot drinking for two hours. That's when you start seeing the, the seven, seven, six games or the nine, two games, you know, when everybody's just like, ah, I could skate. But, you know, the reality of it is that uh, it, I don't think my wife even asked what this, 
what my my team's record is. That's how little it matters. Yeah, it, it's, it sounds like you're going to uh, more likely to have an injury, too, for those late-night games. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, well, the beer muscles help, right? You get that social that social lube in those beer muscles, you think you can do it uh, and find out the next morning that you shouldn't have tried it. Hey, uh, do you know Mark Hammerstrom? Do you play with him? I do. I do. I played with – I was a goalie for um, their team for a couple of seasons uh down there at center ice in uh in sandy springs yeah has, has he told you the story of how he busted both of his groins muscles like pulled both of them and he put icy hot on them <laughs> oh no but that sounds like an absolute miserable choice of, of treatment he said it was the worst like hour of his life oh man yeah that, that pain does not go away quick no it doesn't and it's uh apparently that part of your body's really sensitive Definitely. Oh, oh man. Hey, so you mentioned wife and kids. What's your wife's name? Uh, my wife's name's Connie. Cool. And how many kids do you have? I got two. I got a Benjamin and a Jackson. So I got a hundred and a twenty. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and we're nine and seven. They're twenty months apart. They both play hockey. And you're if you had another kid, it sounds like you you probably would. But if you had another one, I guess that would be Hamilton. Uh, yeah. Unless it was a girl, and then it probably have to be Sacagawea. Ah, nice. You, you've given this some thought. You've definitely given this some thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we were we were prepared. No, I uh, I understand. I, there was no theme to uh, the naming of of my children. It's good times. Well, hey, Travis, I really appreciate you taking time. We'll let you uh, hang out with the fellas and uh, maybe have another beer or two before your game. How? how What's the average number of beers imbibed before a hockey game typically? Uh, I'd say you know a good a good rule of thumb is you bring a six pack and you have three before and three after if they're like double jeopardies. If it's uh, <laughs> if it's the lower the lower grab stuff, I'd still go with a twelve pack and maybe four to five before and the rest after. And it's right. it's, uh, it's more of a fact that you just can't go pee after you got your gear on. You don't need too much in you. Otherwise, you got to stand out there and do the PP dance for seventy-five minutes. Yeah, that's you got to be pragmatic about it. You don't want to uh, do do the PP dance on the ice. <laughs> Very cool. Man. Well, Travis, great talking to you, man. I'm glad Stefan connected us. Uh, have a great uh, game tonight, and uh, we, we wish you nothing but the best, man. Thank you, guys, and thank you for the opportunity. It was a, it was a good time. All right, awesome. Absolutely. All right, All right man. Cheers. All right, see ya. All right. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.